Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, or in tongue but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and those and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Amen. Please be seated. That was 1 John chapter 3, verses 13 through 24. A friend told me a story about his three-year-old granddaughter. Her name was Helen, and it seems that Helen and her parents were dining at a Chinese restaurant. And at the end of the meal, the parents broke open their fortune cookies, and they were reading their fortunes out aloud. And little Helen wanted to read her fortune, too. It says, she proudly announced, Jesus loves me. The love of Jesus is the greatest good fortune that we could ever experience. Now, over the last several weeks, we've been traveling through this letter of 1 John. We've been focusing particularly on a key theme in the letter, the word koinonia, that Greek unique word that is often translated in English as fellowship. And so over the last number of weeks, John has urged us towards the importance of discovering fellowship in the family of God. He has pointed out to us that the world provides many forms of of false or counterfeit fellowship. And so we must pursue the pure fellowship available only to those who are followers of Christ. John then reminded us that it's not enough to merely discover this fellowship. We have a responsibility to remain in it. We looked at that word, to live in, to dwell wherever true koinonia is found. And then last week, our focus was on consistent fellowship. As we asked ourselves, are my attitudes and my beliefs and my values and my priorities consistent with Jesus? who is my Lord, my leader, and my example. Well, today we come to the theme that we're calling the love of fellowship. That is, as a Christ follower, living in and enjoying the koinonia provided by my relationship with Jesus Christ, does love for others flow naturally through my life? 
Because loving with action and not just words can and will build fellowship with other believers as well as with the Lord. Two of Jesus' most famous teachings, even people that really don't know much about the Bible would be familiar with these phrases. The first one, love your neighbor as yourself. And the second, greater love has no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. These are are deep and profound meanings, these statements. But if we're not careful, they might become nothing more than a quaint fortune cookie saying in our lives. And today, today we want to ask this question, how can we best experience and live out the love that flows from fellowship with God. Our text today is in 1 John chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you may want to turn there. And in this chapter, John gives us a number of key points. This morning, we're going to focus on just three. The first thing that I want us to see in our text is that our fellowship in Christ is best experienced when we follow a superior example. Let's take a look again at verse 16, the first half of that, where John says, We know love... By this, that he lay down his life for us. Well, here John is saying, in essence, this is how you can know what love looks and feels like. Look to Jesus. Look to Christ who gave the ultimate sacrifice for you. John had seen that love firsthand. He was there. He watched Christ willingly die for our sins on the cross. Christ chose to love us enough to die for us. That that is some magnificent love. And so we can know how we are to love by looking at the actions of Christ. He is our superior example. Christ gave every bit of His life, even to the point of death, because He loved us. Wow. We have an awesome example, one very difficult to imitate and very different from the world that we live in. Christ's love was one that sacrificed consistently for others. And that is the superior example that we have to follow. According to John, love isn't something that you feel or something that you say. Love is something that you do. It is an action. Jesus laid down His life for us. So, if we, being born of God, are following Him, we can't help but love. It should be a part of our spiritual genetic makeup, if you will. It's who we are. And when we love, we then make God known to one another and to the world. There's a uh, popular song from the 1980s that still lives on over the airwaves. I don't know how many of you grew up and have classic rock songs running through your head. I do at times. 1984 was the year. The number one song, both in the United States and Britain, according to Billboard magazine. One of the top classic rock songs of all time. The song still plays on the radio nearly 40 years later. The song is entitled, I Want to Know What Love Is, by a band called Foreigner. Now, I'd sing it for you, but I don't want to offend you too much. (laughs) 
But it's the chorus that runs through your head once you hear it a little bit. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. Now, the band Foreigner certainly wasn't talking about the kind of love that Jesus exemplifies. But you know, in this world that we live in, we can't argue people into the kingdom of God. We can only show them. Because people today aren't asking if Christianity is true, they're asking if Christianity is good. And it's our job to show them. And when we give of ourselves for the good of others, even for those with whom we might have differences, then we show people what love is. And that's the question people are asking. I want to know what love is. And when we love, we show people what God is like. And so what does that look like in everyday circumstances, in our daily experience? Well, that leads into our second point. After we follow a superior example, our fellowship in Christ is best experienced when we live by an exceptional method. An exceptional method. Loving sacrificially stands as one of the greatest virtues of Christianity. Christ set a pretty hefty example for us to follow. The world that we live in is very selfish. And yet Christ's love is unconditional and unselfish. And so his example sets the stage for an exceptional method that we can see here in the second half of verse 16 down through verse 18. Let's look at this. John says, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But whoever has worldly goods and sees his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God remain in him? Little children, Let's not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So John tells his readers that they must also live like Christ by living sacrificially. Verse 17 is a little interesting. Now verse 16 referred to the death of Christ, and then in verse 17, it actually says that, that if anyone has the life of the world. That would be the, the, the most accurate translation. Uh, in verse 17, my translation on the screen here says, whoever has worldly goods. But really it says, the life of the world. If you have the life of the world, you should give to those in need. You see, the life of the world is wrapped up in what? Possessions, money, worldly goods. And John says, if anyone has the stuff of this world and gives it up to help others, that is an example of love. If we don't have the time or the desire to give that stuff up, what kind of Christ follower are we? Christ gave His own life, and His followers at least must be willing to share their worldly things. And then we get to verse 18, the key, the center, the very essence of this message. Do not just talk love, but live love. Words. Our world is full of words, full of talking, talking heads, commentators, people that have ideas, people that have opinions. Words are easily found. 
Anyone can talk about love and forgiveness and sympathy, but only those dedicated to Christ can consistently live it out daily. Talk is easy, but walk is much harder. Through the Valley of the Kauai is an autobiography of the Scottish captain, Ernest Gordon. And in his book, he recounts the experiences of faith and hope of a group of men that were held in a Japanese prisoner of war labor camp. They were involved in building the Burma Railroad during World War II. And this group of Scottish soldiers were forced by their Japanese captors to labor on a jungle railroad. And during that period of time, these soldiers had degenerated to barbarous behavior. They would fight and kill one another for a scrap of bread. But one afternoon, something happened. It seems that a shovel was missing. The officer in charge became enraged and he demanded that the missing shovel be produced by the prisoners or else. When no one, no one in the squadron budged, the officer took out his gun and he threatened to kill them all on the spot. And it was obvious to them that the officer meant what he said. Finally, one man stepped forward. The officer put away his gun he picked up a shovel and he beat the man to death. When it was over, the remaining survivors of the squadron picked up the body and carried it with them on to the second tool check. This time, no shovel was missing. Indeed, there had been a miscount at that first checkpoint. No shovel had ever been missing. Well, the word spread like wildfire throughout the whole camp. An innocent man, an innocent man had been willing to die to save the others. Well, Mr. Gordon says that the incident had a profound effect on their squadron. He writes that the men began to treat one another like brothers. And when the victorious Allied army finally swept in, their survivors, now human skeletons, lined up in front of their captors. And they were given the opportunity to do whatever they wanted to those captors that had held them and been so evil to them. But to a man, that squadron insisted, no more hatred, no more killing. Now what we need is forgiveness. You see, these men took the lesson that they had learned from their innocent brother and applied it to their lives. They took the idea of pure love and peace and applied it to the chance, the opportunity that they had to take revenge. They lived in love. You see, love is very practical, according to John. It's not just words. It's action. It is an exceptional method of living. When we say something is exceptional, it's a cut above. It's different than everything else around it. And so we are called to this exceptional method of living. We might not have opportunity to give up our physical life or ever be called to do that. 
But can we at least begin by doing good for people in ordinary ways each and every day? In a little book called The Good and Beautiful Community, James Bryan Smith offers some simple suggestions for living unselfishly. And I I jotted a few down that I wanted to share with you. Here's what he says. Some ideas. At home, ask your spouse or your roommate how they're doing. And then really listen. Even if you have other things to do, practice putting his or her needs ahead of yours. A practical suggestion. If you have children or grandchildren, give them the honor of choosing how to spend one evening in the next week any way they want. At work, stop a coworker and ask, what are you working on today and how might I be able to help you with that? Or consider making some fresh coffee for the office or cleaning up the break room. Consider raking a neighbor's leaves, cutting their grass, or taking in their trash can. Another suggestion, at church, sit up near the front of the auditorium or in the spaces where people seldom sit, leaving the more desirable seats for others. And then a final one, when driving, be on the lookout for opportunities to let other people get in front of you. There's a tough one. Practical, simple ways in which we might begin to live a life of love, of making sacrifices for others. Now, none of these things in this little list are likely to change the world. But you know what they might do? They might just change us a little bit more into the kind of people who give of ourselves for the good of others following this exceptional method that is to be the mark of God's family. So, following a superior example, living by an exceptional method, and then finally, our fellowship in Christ can best be experienced when we enjoy an extraordinary confidence. An extraordinary confidence. You know, some people are intrigued by Jesus and Christianity as they look from the outside in, especially by this love talk that we have so often. But they're not really sure that they're ready to embrace it. Maybe they're afraid they won't be able to do it or afraid that they might disappoint people. And you know what? Even those of us who choose to follow Christ are afraid at times. Afraid of others taking advantage of us. Afraid that we'll have to give in too often. We're afraid for all kinds of reasons. But the love of Christ that we've been talking about this morning, the deep love that John speaks of in chapter 3, that we've sung about this morning, this love that God has shown to us through Jesus Christ is designed to overcome our fear. When you disappoint someone who loves you deeply, guess what? They love you anyway. So instead of punishing you or rejecting you, they forgive you. They're patient with you. They give you a a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance, maybe however many it takes. You see, that's how God has loved us. And so that's how we're called to love one another. 
You see, when we are loved in this manner, we are set free. Free to make mistakes. Free to disagree. Free to take risks. We're free to be ourselves. That's why love is the greatest gift that we can extend to one another. It gives us the freedom to be the people that we long to be and were meant to be in Christ and thereby enjoying an extraordinary confidence in Him. I want to look at verses 19 through 22. We will know by this that we're of the truth and we'll set our heart at ease before Him. That if our heart condemns us, that God is greater than our heart. And He knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Well, this entire section is made up of some if statements. That means everything in this section is conditional. When my daughters were young, sometimes I'd say, if you don't clean your room up, you'll be grounded. And so the condition is a clean room. And if that room is not clean, there will be some consequences that happen. Well, that's in a negative aspect. In this section, it's kind of the same. There are some if statements, but it all comes under the umbrella of if we are in Christ, then here are the consequences. So I want us to think about that. If we're in Christ, what are the consequences? And each one of these verses contains one promise that we can be confident in when we are in Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says that we can know for certain that we live in the truth and can be at ease when we act out of love. When we're in Christ, we can take a deep breath and exhale and say, I am at ease. No matter the circumstances that surround me, no matter the turmoil in the world, no matter how many pandemics I live through, I am at ease. Verse 20 reminds us that if our heart condemns us, what does that mean? Are you ever overwhelmed with feelings of guilt? Spiritual uncertainty? Wondering if you're saved or not? If our heart condemns us, what does John say? We can be assured what that God is bigger than our sins. They can be, and by the way, are forgiven. Verse 21 says that if our hearts are clean, we can stand before God in confidence. The Hebrew writer puts it this way. The child of God can boldly approach the throne of grace. Why? Because we belong to Him. That's confidence, folks. That's assurance that we deeply and desperately need. And so many Christian people struggle with not feeling and holding on to that assurance. Verse 22 shows us that if we keep God's commands that, uh, to, to love, that we can ask Him for anything and receive it. 
Now there's a verse that's been pulled out and used out of context so many times over the years. Does this mean that I can ask God for whatever I want and I get it? Kind of like a, my heavenly vending machine in heaven. I just ask for it and I get it. No. If we love Him, we're going to ask for the things that He loves. Not out of selfish motives, but out of godly motives. We need to understand the work that Christ did for us on the cross in a new way. And when we do, we will begin to live with extraordinary confidence. I have a friend who is a huge sports fan. And since many of the events uh, that he's interested in take place when he's not at home, he likes to record the sporting events. And then when it's time to sit down in his easy chair and view the recording, unlike most other people, he doesn't start from the beginning to view the game. Instead, he fast-forwards to the climax to understand who won and who lost. And then if his team lost, he turns off the recording and deletes it. But if his team won, he'll start the game back at the beginning, grab some snacks, and watch the whole game. Now, when he told me about this method, I said, that doesn't sound like very much fun. He said, oh, no, no, it, it is. He said, because no matter how bad things get for my team, I don't have to worry because I know the end of the story. Maybe that's how we ought to think about what Jesus did for us on the cross. We can live with extraordinary confidence no matter how bad things look, how uncertain or fearful or worried that we might be in this world. We don't have to live in anxiety because we know the end of the story. The love of Christ flowing from the cross until He returns again. The love that we live in, the love that we enjoy, the love that we are called to share. That is the extraordinary confidence that we can live in. And may it be our mark wherever He places us. Let's pray together.